With a quick show of hands, I'm curious, um, how many of you noticed that we both sung Psalm 5 and read Psalm 5 together? That was the last song before the, the, the message. Um, I can't speculate just how much interaction a diverse congregation like this would have had with Psalm 5 in the past. Likely you've read through it in personal or family devotions. You've worked through it in a Bible study, perhaps, or even remember details of it from a previous sermon. Again, with a show of hands, how many of you have ever seen it used or used it yourself as a proof text that God hates the wicked? I think I only saw one hand. How many of you have ever seen it used as a call to repentance and worship? One or two hands. I personally have used Psalm 5 in the past as one of many passages that speaks to God's hatred for the wicked. And not just man's sin abstractly, but God's hatred of the unrepentant sinner. And we remember that because God doesn't send sin to hell. He sends the sinner to hell. The man who refuses to come to Christ in faith. And I think this psalm does that, but I would like for us to see that in context, David's citing of God's hatred for sin is his motivation for repentance, obedience, and worship. And it is likewise a call for the reader to repentance, worship, and confidence in Yahweh. As we begin our study of Psalm 5, I want to give you a little background information. And I want us to consider the overall structure of the psalm before we get into the more practical lessons from the text. I believe that having an understanding of the structure allows us to appreciate the flow of the passage a little bit more. And it also helps to highlight some of the aspects of Hebrew poetry. And as you start to see some of these aspects from today's sermon, hopefully you can apply them to other psalms in your personal reading and studies. And this goes as well um, in many other uh, texts of Scripture, especially the prophets uh, in in the Old Testament. Um, I'm reading through Isaiah in personal devotions as well. There is so much Hebrew poetry in in Isaiah. Um, And as I do my devotional readings in in this Bible, um, I often find myself trying to find the A-B correlations. And, ooh, there's ellipsis. There's verb gapping there. And, and, and the, the authors of, of Hebrew poetry do that so that they can save something, maybe sometimes to add to the second line. By taking out that verb, they can give you a little more um, interest and in, in, in expansion in the second. As is typical with the Psalms, Psalm 5 begins with an introductory section signifying the addressee, the tune or musical instrument, and the author. And here we, we read... To the choir master for flutes, a psalm of David. And intriguingly, this psalm is to be accompanied by flutes. This is the only psalm with this accompaniment. And so I desired, I do have some, somewhat of a musical background as well. Um, but it made me want to speculate, what are the implications of having a flute accompaniment versus a stringed instrument? Especially since the term psalm comes from the word meaning to pluck. Um, it, it can be interpreted that way. At a, at a minimum, it's, it's a song sung with accompaniment. But um, throughout the centuries, many translators had associated plucking of the strings along with it. Unfortunately, I was left wanting. So I hate to get you all stirred up for what we're going to 
combined with the flute and the, and, and the strings, but I couldn't find anything. And although most modern translations use the word flute, and many commentators discuss the meaning of the Hebrew word as probably meaning flute specifically, or wind instruments generally, there is no further discussion about its implications. In contrast, Jewish scholars tend to interpret the word as a type of tune to be played and not an instrument at all. So again, that was unhelpful. All in all, though, the meaning is obscure because this is the only occurrence of the word in the Old Testament, and there are some valid discussions surrounding the various potential meanings of the word. So unfortunately, we're left with little to go on, but I think in the grand scheme of things, that's okay. Regarding the placement of the psalm in the Psalter, the themes of Psalm 3, 4, and 5 are similar and are grouped well in light of this. So maybe some things will uh, be recalled to mind. Um, if you were here two weeks ago when I looked at Psalm 3, I know there are some faces here that weren't here then. Um, and it was even a more prestigious group that stayed for Education Hour. And I want to encourage you, if you're not in the habit of staying for the Education Hour afterwards, I, I want to convince you that there is nothing greater that you can be doing um, unless you're doing works of mercy or works of necessity uh, when, when you leave here today, I promise you there's not going to be anything better for you than to stay for the fellowship and the study of God's word. And I don't just mean that on the Sundays that I'm here. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm not trying to say that I'm just going to wow you in education hour. That's not the point. I hope you would, you would make it a habit every Lord's Day. But um, last time we looked at Psalm 3 and 4. To this, this afternoon in, in the sermon, we're looking at Psalm 5, and then we'll look at Psalm 6 in the education hour to follow. And they, they do have um, a, a recurring theme. And additionally, whereas Psalm 4 could be classified as a nighttime psalm, Psalm 3 and 5 are morning psalms. And since we're studying Psalm 5, I would encourage you to read Psalm 4 this evening as a family before you all head to bed. Both psalms show David seeking an audience with God in his prayers a contrast against the unfaithful, and a request for peace and blessing. Consider some of these highlights from this afternoon's sermon as you read Psalm 4 together this evening. And I was also doing some studies in Hebrews 4, and providentially found several similar, similar similarities between it and Psalm 5 as well. And so I would encourage you as a family to read both Psalm 4 and Hebrews 4, either later today or this, this week together to pick out some of those similar themes. In considering the structure of Psalm 5, I segment it into two major portions. What I would title as first David's plea or lament in verses 1 through 7, and then David's prayer or supplication in verses 8 through 12. Throughout the psalm, there is a pattern of request, reason, and contrast. The request sections are identifiable by the use of verbal imperatives, such as the word give, consider, in verses 1 and 2, and lead and make, in verse, verse 8. The reason subsections are also easily recognizable um, with the marked conjunction for. So for, when you see it, is often a, a reason word, for this reason. While the contrast sections are marked with a conjunction but in English. The second major section, which is David's prayer, includes a concluding reason subsection that closes out both the second half of the psalm and the overall psalm climactically. Now, although the, script, the structure and the poetry of 
the psalm are important for study and interesting, at least to me, on several levels. Um, as we consider the words of the psalmist, I want us to consider what it means for us today as modern Christians. My sermon title, which should be in the, the bulletin, is Repentance and Prayer for Righteousness. On account of my desire to emphasize the practical application, I've broken the psalm into three responses that we can draw from the text. There will be certainly more calls to action in the subsections as we work our way through the psalm, but here are the three main points for this sermon. First, keep a short record of accounts regarding your sin, verses 1 through 6. Pursue righteousness on account of the covenantally loyal love of God, from verses 7 through 9, and side with the righteousness of God and rejoice in Him, from verses 10 and 12. And so we begin with our first point, come with confidence before the throne of God. And our first subsection, plead for an audience with Yahweh. David writes, give ear to my words, O Yahweh, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. As I alluded to, I'm distinguishing the plea or the lament lament of David in verses 1 and 2 from the prayer or the supplication of David in verse 8. Because in these first two verses, David is essentially asking for an audience with these commanding pleas for his case to be heard. Give ear, consider, give attention. The formal request of his prayer comes later after his audience with Yahweh has been established. David's plea for an audience is typically poetic in its restructuring and rephrasing of similar concepts. And you might recall that I used uh, Kugel's terminology of A, what's more B, and B, what's more C. Um, And we see that here as well. In verses 1 and 2, David is pleading with Yahweh to be heard, and with each request, he intensifies the verb while digressing the object. And I find this very beautifully poetic. He first asks in A, Yahweh, hear my words. This is a very simple, straightforward request. While in B, he says, don't just hear me, but pay attention. Give heed. I have a particular son who likes to talk a lot. He probably got it from me. Um, Sometimes we merely let him get the words out of his mouth so that he can just vocalize them and move on. We hear him. But he doesn't seem too concerned if we're paying very close attention to what he has to say. And we can just continue what we're doing while he's talking in the background. We can hear him talking without us giving really any heed to what he's saying. And most of the time that works both for us as the parent and for him as the child. David's request in phrase A is a little bit more than a request for mere audible recognition, yet it is a very fairly simple appeal. Please hear me or listen. Yahweh, I'm speaking. Please hear me. Phrase B, consider my groaning, however, is now asking for more attention. Don't just listen, but pay attention to me. In human conversation, we might be looking for eye contact. I know you hear me, but are you paying attention? And I'm sure that every parent in this room has said it, and every child in this room has probably heard it at some time. Look at me while I'm speaking to you. Why? So that I know you heard me. And it's not that seeing makes our ears work better, but there is more clarity and understanding from both sides 
that the message is being delivered and understood accordingly. And we're able to do that with eye contact. Furthermore, it's not just his words that David wants to be acknowledged. His meditation is his sighing or groaning. No words are uttered here, but David needs Yahweh to pay attention so he can interpret and understand even wordless groaning. Have you ever felt the need to pray and not be able to find the words? Because your emotions or the gravity of the situation gets in the way? This seems to be what David is considering here as well. We'll see momentarily that David confidently believed that both his words and his groanings were heard by Yahweh. In the same way, Paul speaks to this in Romans 8:26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. The Spirit of God in the Christian knows our hearts and makes intercession for us, even when we don't know what words to say. Finally, in praise C, David repeats his request again. And it's nuanced in different terminology. In Hebrew, no word is repeated from the first two requests into this third one, though it is a little more difficult to distinguish in English. David's third plea is for Yahweh to listen attentively to the sound of his voice as he utters his cry for help. This third phrase could either be an expansion of the first two or even a summary of them both. David is essentially saying, whatever words or noise my voice utters, articulate or inarticulate, please pay close attention to my pleading and my call for help. And here is where the request is made personally and confidently. Yahweh, you are my king and my God. And David is addressing both the the authoritative sovereignty and the deity of Yahweh. And he states his fealty in the first person. I'm coming to you subserviently because you are my king and my God. This statement links the request to the reason. Why should Yahweh listen to David's plea? David says, for the reason, for to you do I pray. Please pay attention to me, for to you I will pray. And this statement reminds me of Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. David, as a humble servant, is stating that his prayer should be heard because he's bringing it, his request, before Yahweh, his king and his God. David understands that there are practical implications to the sovereignty or kingship of Yahweh that demands his worship. David expresses both aspects in this psalm, and this must be our perspective as well, as we are called to obey the sovereign king, maker of heaven and earth, and to worship God for his holiness and righteousness. These two aspects of God, his sovereignty and his deity, likewise give us confidence that he can attend to our needs. And here we see our second, second application found in verse 3. Come confidently to the throne of grace. David writes, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Verse 3 consists of three assertive statements. First, David asserts that, in fact, God does hear his voice in the morning. David is confident that Yahweh is hearing and attending to his prayers. An important implication is that David is indeed praying. Believer, you cannot have confidence that God will hear your prayer in the morning if you're not praying to God in the morning. 
In the second phrase, David strengthens that implication by stating that he will, or indeed does, direct his prayer to God in the morning. And depending on the version from which you may be reading this verse, you will likely get one of three possible interpretations. In my Bible reading and study, I tend to only look at three other translations apart from the original languages. They are the New King James Version, because that's the uh, translation of choice for the Olympia Church. The ESV, which is what I prefer, which is my daily devotional reading from the ESV. And then the Lexham English Bible, which is known to be a very um, accurate literal translation from the original languages. So I've come to appreciate that. Um, And although I believe the LEV has the best translation of the three of this phrase, the New King James is a strong second. I believe, however, that the ESV in this case got it wrong based on their interpretation of the overall context, but not strictly on the available translation of the phrase from Hebrew. It seems that the translators of the ESV are categorizing the psalm in a cultic sense. And by by stating cultic, that, that means in the sense of worship. So to be understood as happening alongside of or in preparation for a religious ceremony or ritual. And in this context, it would be in conjunction with the morning sacrifices, is is how they're translating that. Um, Every day, the Jewish people, twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, had had sacrifices. And uh, at least the translators are are tying this passage with uh, the morning sacrifice. The ESV reads, In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you. However, in electronic versions of the ESV, if you were to look it up um, online at at a place like Bible Gateway or such, um, they usually have a footnote that provides the alternate alternate reading of, I direct my prayer to you, in lieu of, I prepare a sacrifice. Which is similar to the translation and interpretation that the New King James provides. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning, I will direct it to you. That would be his prayer in in the morning. It refers to the psalmist's voice in prayer. The verb translated as prepare in the ESV and direct in the New King James Version can be understood as to prepare or present, either in the cultic sense of preparing a sacrifice for worship or in a legal sense of presenting a case. To lay out, to set in rows, or to assess, or even to order one's affairs. And I believe that the context of Psalm 5 is speaking to the prayers being prepared and presented rather than inferring a context of preparing an actual morning sacrifice. And although daily sacrifices regularly took place um, every morning and every evening, it seems straightforward in the the context of the psalm that is a personal morning prayer. Furthermore, I think more clarity can be offered in the translation. So I translate it uh, myself as, I present my case or I order my affairs to you. The LEB similarly reads, In the morning I will set, my, set forth my case to you. I think this fits the context very well, as we'll see in verse 4 and following, with David's reason or rationale for his regular morning prayer. Every morning, David assesses his own affairs, setting up his case to present before Yahweh. He's considering the state of his sin, his need for repentance, and his need for direction from God. David, having reflected on his condition, states before Yahweh, in the morning I will direct it to you. 
David closes this triad with a statement, and I will look up. There are also three ways this small phrase can be translated and understood. And I believe all three are valid. I will share with you my opinion on the preferred interpretation, but it is simply my opinion based on the options available and not because the others are wrong per se or wrong at all. There is a very beautiful rendition of Psalm 5 as a song that takes its lyrics directly from the King James Version of verses 1 through 3 with a bridge of sorts that expands on the phrase, look up. And then in that bridge, the, the singer uses it to summarize the focus of the remainder of the psalm, which is a response to worship. This is the first option for interpreting this phrase. The songwriter states, look up. Hold your head high. Come before the throne with confidence. You can hold your head up high. Come with boldness. Come with confidence. Your head held high. Your heart bowed down. Come with confidence to worship the Lord. For he is worthy. He is worthy. The author's understanding of look up is a common interpretation for looking up in confidence. And a believer can look up in confidence in the throne room of heaven because we have given liberal access. Equally, we can look up in confidence because the believer is assured that her sins will be forgiven when they are confessed. The believer who prays in confidence knows that he is praying to the sovereign king and God of the universe who has the power to answer any prayer for the good of the saints and for the glory of God. Likewise, the believer who prays in confidence in light of Scripture knows that God will faithfully fulfill his word and every promise he has ever made. Praying in confidence to our God and our King is certainly within the constraints of this psalm. However, I also think that the phrase, and I will look up, should be rightly understood as, and I will be watchful. Herein lies the other two interpretations of watchfulness. On the one hand, having prayed, the believer can look up and be watchful for what God will do to act on behalf of the prayer of the faithful. On the other hand, the believer who has ordered his ways and prepared his case before God, having repented of his sins, can now look up and continue to be watchful, to follow in God's path of righteousness, being quick to repentance when he goes astray. I think both of these understandings are also consistent with the context of the psalm and can both be done simultaneously. In these first three verses, then, we have observed David's plea to his king and his God that his voice and groanings would be heard, and he assures himself and the reader that he is confident that Yahweh does indeed hear his prayers. The modern, modern Christian is likewise called to plead for an audience with Yahweh and come confidently before the throne of grace. David then proceeds to explain the reason, the importance for his plea to be heard and for him to order his steps before Yahweh. And here is the Christian's proper response. Put wickedness far from you. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You will destroy those who speak lies. Yahweh abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Here are those so-called proof text verses of which we were earlier speaking. God does not take pleasure in wickedness, and he does not allow evil to dwell in his presence. The psalmist demonstrates that God does not make a distinction 
between hating the sin but loving the sinner. Rather, it is the sinner who faces God's just wrath. It is the unrepentant sinner that God will cast into hell with everlasting torment, not, near, not merely all the wicked deeds of men from eternity past. The known justice of God and his attributes of holiness and righteousness instill a fear compelling obedience from the psalmist. As a faithful servant, David desires to be in the presence of God. He knows that no wickedness can dwell with God, so he regularly sets his accounts straight with his king and his God in faithful submission. This reminds me of Job, who regularly offered sacrifices for his children, just in case they sinned unwittingly or cursed God in their hearts. These thoughts are further expressed as the psalmist continues. Along with keeping a short account of our sins before God, the Christian is called to pursue righteousness on account of the covenantally loyal love of God. And this is our second main point this morning. Pursue righteousness on account of the covenantally loyal love of God. In verses 7 through 9, we see David contrast himself with the wicked and evildoers. His primary prayer request and his justification why his prayer should be answered affirmatively. Our first call to action is found in verse 7. Humble yourself in worship. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your temple in the fear of you. In David's contrastive statement, he is not merely demonstrating that he is not like the rebellious. He is not staking his case on the fact that they are evil and he is good. Rather, David is humbly acknowledging that it is only because of the chesed, the covenantally loyal love of Yahweh, that he has any standing with God at all. Brothers and sisters, this is precisely what we have in Christ. It is not our own righteousness that saves us and renews our relationship with God, but our salvation is by grace, through faith, and not that of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Why? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is in Yahweh alone that made the covenant with David to establish a kingdom in anticipation of the coming Messiah. And it is Yahweh alone that established the new covenant that said that his people would have their hearts of stone replaced with a heart of flesh so that in faith, We can stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we could not and died the death that we could not, so that we could have a right relationship with God. Furthermore, as I alluded to earlier, David clarifies that his correct understanding of both the justice and the mercy of God and a true understanding of himself spurred him to fearful obedience and proper worship. Having pleaded for an audience and having now presented his case of repentance and fealty or worship and obedience, David is now ready to present his prayer. For us, it is an instruction to lean on the word of the Lord. David prays, lead me, O Yahweh, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. David's prayer is that Yahweh will lead him in righteousness. David does not want to be like the the wicked that he identifies here as his enemies. David wants to be a faithful servant and worshiper of his king and his God. He has acknowledged that it was only because 
of the covenantally loyal love of God that he even has a right to come worship. David desires that Yahweh continue to lead and guide him, smooth his path, prop him up, and enable him to further obedience and service. God alone can give him the wisdom or the smooth path to know and understand the ways and the law of God. Believer, this needs to be our prayer as well. We must humbly acknowledge that it is nothing good in us that has drawn God to us. In fact, what the scriptures say that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Furthermore, we must seek the wisdom of God and the direction of the Holy Spirit to guide us through the word that he has given to us. As Peter has professed, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. The author of Hebrews likewise declares, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Furthermore, Paul instructed Timothy, But you must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. James also instructs believers to pray in faith and confidence for wisdom from God. Like David, these are all things that we are called to pursue. And he again cycles into the reason that spurred him to pursue God's leading. David's desire, as ours should be, is to avoid the sins of the wicked. In this case, lies, false witness, and injustice. And this is our third application. Avoid the sins of deceit and injustice. Verse 9, for there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. David explains that there is no truth or faithfulness in the mouth of the wicked. There is neither faithfulness in the form of submission to Yahweh as king and God, nor is there any faithfulness to the truth in their mouth. They are willing to lie, to bear false witness, to flatter and make bribes for their benefit and often to the detriment of others. Death is in their throat. Not only is it a grave, but it remains open, so that the stench of death readily pours out. As a king himself, David hates these wicked men. David desired to be a just and righteous king, and any in his kingdom who treated the poor unjustly, used false weights, lied in court, or otherwise conned others for their own selfish gain were enemies to David. David wanted no part of that because he knew that Yahweh wanted no part of that. David then continues to form an imprecatory prayer against these wicked people. And thus we are called to side with the righteousness of God and rejoice in him. This is our third point today. And then to pray for justice. Verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgression... Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Although the words of David are an imprecatory prayer, invoking judgment upon the enemies of God, 
Note the restraint in David's prayer. He wants God's justice to be done so that the wicked would be held accountable for their sin and rebellion. But David isn't merely asking that they be struck with lightning and utterly destroyed or hunted down and killed. He's asking for the ironic justice that their own words of lies and corruption would fall back on them in evil than on those whom they target. Can you think of other cases of ironic justice like this in Scripture? I can think of two that readily come to mind, and I'm sure that they'll be familiar to you when you hear them. The first is Haman in the book of Esther, who erected a post that he wanted to hang Mordecai upon, yet he was brought to justice and impaled upon his own stake. Likewise, the corrupt administrators of Daniel's day in Daniel 6 wanted to be rid of Daniel by devising a scheme that would result in Daniel being cast into the pit of lions. Rather than being consumed, Daniel was vindicated by Yahweh, and it was the wicked administrators and their families who had their bones crushed by the lions and were devoured. As a side note, there's a very interesting Hebrew idiom mixed in there as well, because in the Hebrew, what, what we translate in English as accusers, the, the word is, it, it's, a, it's a participle, so it's referring to those who eat the pieces of another. So they were, they were called those who were eating the pieces of Daniel. And so that's another twist on the irony of they wanted Daniel to be, his pieces to be eaten by the lions, and yet it was their pieces that were eaten by the lions. And the idea is that they're accusing him, they're calling his reputation um, to task. And so little by little, they're eating the pieces of his reputation is kind of where that idiom comes from. So some of the joy of Hebrew. One day I'm going to make you all fans of Hebrew, and maybe we'll take a class together, but... In the meantime, I'll geek out on you a little bit here and there. Well, in verses 11 through 12, David's final contrasting statement is a request that the faithful, unlike the wicked, would obediently respond in worship to God. He further asserts confidently that his request is consistent with the character of God. And so, believer, we are called to rejoice and trust in God. Here we're at verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Yahweh. You cover him with favor as with a shield. What is the first question and answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What is the chief end of man? And what is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. David understood that the righteous believer needn't merely obey and serve out of the fear of Yahweh's sovereignty and righteous justice. If we truly hope and trust in Yahweh, we may rejoice and shout for joy because when God is for us, who can be against us? Yahweh defends those who love and trust in him. And the sons of Korah likewise asserted in Psalm 84:11, For the Lord God is the sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing would he withhold from those who walk uprightly. We also saw last uh, two weeks ago uh, the reference of the shield um, in, in, in Psalms. We have then both a request that God would grant us joy and blessing, as well as a prompting that our right response is joy and worship in light of God's protection and blessing that he has assured and granted to those who trust in him.
Through the words of David, you are compelled as a believer to come with confidence before the throne of God, to plead for an audience with Yahweh, to come confidently to the throne of grace, and to put wickedness far from you, to pursue righteousness on account of the covenantally loyal love of God, to humble yourself in worship, lean on the word of the Lord, and avoid the sins of deceit and injustice. And third, to side with the righteousness of God and rejoice in him. Pray for justice and ultimately rejoice and trust in God. However, not only is this psalm a call to action for the believer, it is a warning and a call to repentance for any who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in faith. There is no good deed that you can do to reconcile your relationship with God. You must humbly bow the knee and take Jesus as the Lord of your life and say, I will follow you for the rest of my life. You must repent of your sins, which means that you must hate them, turn away from them, and cling to the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. If you have never done this, I pray that you will do so today, even before you leave your seat. Also, as a final reminder, I want to encourage you to read two other passages today, Psalm 4 and Hebrews 4, and then consider the similarities between these two passages and Psalm 5 that we have just studied. We... We do this and we come to God in prayer.